Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. Um, If you don't own a Bible, don't have one at home, please feel free to take one of the Pew Bibles as a gift from us. This is Luke chapter 19, verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Welcome to Christ Community. And as Taylor said, as we began, we are here because God is calling us. And everything that we do here uh, in, in the course of a service together is about walking us in the story of the gospel. So we've heard the word of God sung over us and sung to us. We've recited uh, our, our convictions, our, our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed, which was um, written by Christians who uh, were trying to define their, their faith in, in the midst of, of a cultural climate. This is back early on, and so this has kind of become a codified place of belief that we join with Christians both throughout the centuries uh, as well as around the world today and saying this is what we hold dear in, uh, in the scriptures and the core message of the truth of the gospel. And uh, we continue in that now as we, uh, again, have heard the word proclaimed in song, recited together in the, the words of the creed, and now we want to hear it proclaimed in the, in the scriptures as well, um, as we've just heard them read, and now I want to spend some time looking at them. So I just want to pray and ask that the Holy Spirit, who is the author of the scriptures through the human authors, um, would speak to us afresh through them now. So Father in heaven, would you uh, send your spirit in a unique and fresh way in this moment to us that the words that he inspired so many years ago would be as fresh and new and relevant to us in this moment um, as they were for the original readers and hearers of them. Apply them to our lives. May they bring new life and transformation to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Well, it is finally here, right? Super Bowl Sunday. It is today. Uh, the Chiefs are in it again, and this is an exciting day for our city. Uh, you know, uh, I know Taylor mentioned this last week, but you know, Pastor Taylor is a big Green Bay fan. Uh, he was really, really hoping for a repeat of Super Bowl One, a Packers-Chiefs Super Bowl that that didn't happen. So, you know, if you can offer him your condolences at some point. I think he's still grieving that a little bit, you know, maybe next year. Um, but I, I, I put a picture up here. This is actually a picture from Super Bowl One, a Chiefs player tackling a Green Bay player there on the screen. Um, so someday that'll, that'll be coming. But, you know, I just, I love the energy in, in, our, our, in, our, in our city. Uh, you know, it reminds me certainly of, of last year with the Super Bowl and even, you know, in 14 and 15 with the Royals where, you know, there's all kinds of things going on in the world right now. We're, we're all tired of the pandemic. There's political division, but there just seems to be a moment in Kansas City around sports where the city can unite and just celebrate uh, being in this, whether, you know, matter whether you're rich or poor, you know, different racial, ethnic backgrounds, different political backgrounds. We can all get excited about the Chiefs. And I don't know if you remember, I mean, it's not that long ago, right? It was right before everything changed in our lives because of the pandemic. But the celebrations after the game, I mean, I remember the celebrations happening during the game. I just live here in Waldo, and I think after every touchdown, there were fireworks and celebratory gunfire happening in the neighborhood. But then we got to the point of the parade, right? And, and the whole city shut down, right? Businesses closed. The schools were, were, were shut down. Um, you know, no teachers were like, we're going to go to school that day. There weren't going to be any kids there. Everybody's going to the parade and celebrating. It was a, this moment where the victors had been crowned, and they were returning then to their city, to their people, to their crowds to celebrate. And as we come here to Luke chapter 19, this is Jesus's moment. This is his parade. This is the moment when he, as the king, is coming to his people, to his city. And everything in the gospel of Luke has been building to this moment from chapter one on. Right? Jesus has been giving sermons. He's been teaching. He's been traveling around. He's been healing. He's healed the blind. He's made people who were unable to walk, able to walk. He has even raised the dead. All of this has unfolded and it's leading up to this moment of now Jesus coming to Jerusalem as king. But the question is, how will his people respond and is he the kind of king that they expect? And will he arrive in the way that they expect? Which leads us to the question that I want us to ask all throughout this sermon. And that is, what kind of king do we want? What kind of king do you want? Because here is the reality for us. All of us have a king. Something or someone who is functionally giving shape and meaning and significance to our lives. We all have a king. And this is another reality that comes along with that, is that who or what is king in our life, whoever we've placed on that position in our lives or who have allowed to take that position in our life, we are going to become like that king. It's inevitable. And so here's, here's just kind of a silly example to start with. If on the sort of king of your sports life, if you've placed the Kansas City Chiefs there, you're going to end up, and I see a lot of it in the room today, you're going to end up with a lot more red in your wardrobe than, say, uh, probably Pastor Taylor has in his wardrobe as a Packers fan, right? Who you place on the king of your sports life, it affects the clothes that are in your closet, 
which, you know, that's, that's a pretty minimal thing, right? But when it comes to the bigger things, the things that are really functionally shaping your life as king, it gets a lot more serious. As it, so if you put safety as the ultimate king of your life, over time you're going to end up cautious and fearful. If you put money as the ultimate king in your life, Again, over time, you're going to become more and more like You're going to become tight-fisted. You're going to become anxious. You're going to become worried about finances. If power or cultural influence is the thing that you place on the throne of your life, you're, you're going to get caught up in, in the outrage culture, in the cancel culture. You're going to get caught up in this, this endless sort of riding of the wave of either despair or elation, depending on whether your political party or preference or platform is on the ascendancy or the descendancy in, in this cultural moment. Or I think for a lot of us, this is one that's easy for us to fall in. If we make sort of being a star performer, whether that's being an awesome parent or a really key player at work or an elite athlete at school or the, the best student in our class, if we kind of make our performance the king of our lives, what ends up happening is that we, on a functional day-to-day basis, use people and opportunities really just as a means to advance our own self-worth. So what kind of king do you want? And here, here's the reality for us this morning also, is that because Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom that he's bringing, and, and he as a king is so different, is so upside down, is so utterly different than the kingdoms of the world, you cannot be neutral with Jesus' kingdom. You can either crown him or you can kill him. You can either submit to him or you can shun him. But there's no middle ground with Jesus' kingdom. And what we're going to see this morning as we walk through this text in the Gospel of Luke here in Luke chapter 19 is we're going to sort of be confronted with three different choices about the kind of king that we want. Three different contrasts of the kind of King Jesus versus the kingdoms of the world and asking that question, which one do we want And the first one that we encounter here is, do we want a king who is lofty or a king who is lowly? A king who is lofty or a king who is lowly? And if you haven't turned yet in your Bible or pulled out your phone yet and turned on your Bible to Luke chapter 19, I'd encourage you to do that right now. I'd love for you to follow with me through this passage as we look at it this morning. So Luke chapter 19, we're going to start in verse 28. And again, we've been studying the gospel of Luke. We're rediscovering Jesus' kingdom that he's bringing, uh, that he is, the, the gospels are recounting this, and the literature of the gospels is kind of the genre of theological biography, meaning that they tell the story of Jesus' life, but they have a particular way of framing that story to show us who Jesus is. And the story that Jesus fits into is a kingdom story. The Bible is a kingdom story. From page one all the way through to the final pages of Revelation. You see, Jesus, he creates, and we learn this in the New Testament, but we we have this world that has been created. We we actually confess that in the words of the Apostles' Creed, right? The, the, The maker of heaven and earth. That God created the heaven and earth. And when he did that, then he creates human beings as these unique creatures in his image to rule the world with him. He's actually invited us 
as people uniquely made in his image, to enter into this, this covenant, this partnership, this relationship with him, to rule the world with him. But we know that the story quickly turns, and Adam and Eve are faced with this choice of, of will they rule with God and in his way, or will they seize control and power and defining right and wrong on their own and, and try to rule the world on their own terms? And, and they make that choice. And, and the story that we had such high hopes for right out of the gate is soon one that seems like it's over. As Adam and Eve are put outside the garden, away from God's presence, that the creation that they were supposed to, to rule over now will, will push back against them that it won't work as it ought. But there is nestled in there this promise that one day a king is going to come who will crush the head of the snake, a king who will set all things to right once again, who will be the true image of God that human beings were supposed to be, the true partner to God to rule in the world, and that he would make a new people around himself who would be able to carry out this command, this, this work of ruling over God's good world in his way. And as we read on in the story, you get to Abraham, who God picks this one family, this family of Abraham, for them to be a blessing to the whole world. And that from him, this family and his descendants of, of Isaac and Jacob, whose name is later changed to Israel, that this family is going to be the family that God's promised king will come. And so the tension, the anticipation of this king who will come and set things right is building throughout the Old Testament. And yet there's this constant cycle of disappointment. Every time it seems like, wow, like this is going to be the person or this is going to be the moment when it really starts coming together, inevitably there's failure. Even with King David, who is sort of the best hope in the Old Testament of the king who is a man after God's own heart, who seems like he is going to be the one who could be that king that was promised. He begins so well. And then, of course, toward the end of his life, you have this, this moment of, of murder and adultery but then there's Solomon, right? His son, and maybe, maybe it's not David, but maybe David's son, Solomon, maybe he can be the king that we've longed for. And, and again, Solomon's story begins so well. He has this amazing prayer, and he doesn't ask for riches or wealth, or, or all, he just says, God, would you just give me wisdom? It's like, wow, like, this, is the kind, this is the kind of prayer that the, the promised king would pray. But again, toward the end of Solomon's life, he, he breaks all of these expectations and, and hopes for the king that's laid out in the book of Deuteronomy. He takes all these other wives and he accumulates all this wealth for himself and then his sons are even worse than him. And it's just this downward spiral through the books of, you know, you can read about it in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. Just this failure after, failure after failure. There's a few bright spots, but they never last. Like a, a really good king will come on the scene, but then as soon as they hand over the throne... It's just back to darkness, back to despair. And we're just left wondering, when is the king going to come? The people actually end up exiled outside of the land. They're taken away into Babylon. Now, not only do they not have a king, 
They're not even in the land anymore. And even when they finally, under the, the rule of, of, the, of the Persian Emperor Cyrus, get to go back to the land, they're still an occupied force there. They have a king from another nation ruling over them. And you get the Greeks then rule over them. And now finally the Romans are ruling over them. And so they're stuck there still waiting, still longing. And the claim that Luke is making in his book is that Jesus... This Jewish kid born to an unwed mother in the backwater town of Nazareth is the promised king who Israel has been waiting for all this time. And, and he doesn't make any, uh, you know, he, he starts right there from the beginning. He's not trying to hide it. So if you look all the way back to Luke chapter 1, I'll have it on the, the screen for you here. But I mean, this, he, this note from the very beginning is sounded. Listen to the words of the angel to Mary when the angel is telling her, this is what, you know, you're going to have this king. Verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom of his kingdom, there will be no end. So right out of the gate, Luke is saying, the king has come. He's here. And now we've been waiting for these 19 chapters for the culmination of what will it mean for Jesus as king to come to Jerusalem. And he, you know, he's visited Jerusalem a lot of times before in his life. We have a number of them recorded in the gospel, but this time is different. This time is different. And Luke is ratcheting up the tension for us. And again, the way that, you know, inevitably that we preach sermon series, that kind of thing, we're, we're taking smaller chunks. We're, we're not reading the, you know, chapters and chapters all at once. But if you just read Luke, you start to feel the tension. I just want to point out to you, he uses this language of drawing near. So, I mean, Israel's been waiting for this king for hundreds and hundreds of years. But now, even in the story of Luke, he's waiting, and this language of Jesus getting closer and closer is all throughout. So, if you start back in 18, verse 35, it says, And he, Jesus, drew near to Jericho. So, Jericho's on the way there. He's there. And we looked at how he heals this blind man. He meets uh, Zacchaeus there. He's drawing near, right? Drawing near to Jericho. And then you go on to get to verse 19, or chapter 19, verse 11. And they heard these things, and he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. He's getting closer. And then you go down to verse 37. And he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives. He's coming down the mountain, and now he's going to go up into Jerusalem. You're down to verse 41. And when he drew near, and then finally in verse 45, he enters the temple. So Luke is just saying the king is getting closer and closer and closer. He's getting near, closer. And then he arrives in the temple. But why does Jesus arrive like this? Because everything that Jesus does in these moments of entering into Jerusalem, the way he does it, is all planned. It's all on purpose. But why does he do it this way? Why does Jesus, who walks everywhere in his life, now ride into Jerusalem? It's because kings don't walk into their capital cities. They ride. But even the way Jesus does that is weird. Why does Jesus 
if he wants to make the statement that he's a king, why does he ride in on a donkey? Right? Why a donkey? It's like going to the rental car lot and picking out the minivan when the Mustang is right there, right? If you're a king and you want to make a splash, you pick the warhorse, the stallion, the big, beautiful animal, this regal picture, but Jesus chooses the donkey. Why? Well, again, like I said, everything is planned. All of this is on purpose, and it goes back to Zechariah, one of these prophets who's telling the story of the long-awaited king. And in Zechariah chapter 9, we read, or yeah, chapter 9, we read these verses in, in 9 and 10. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. That's another name for Jerusalem. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. And then it says, Humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, that's another name for God's people, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bill shall be cut off, and he shall speak, what peace to the nations. And his rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. You see that what Zechariah is doing, he says, when the real king comes, it's not going to be a violent military overthrow. And he's not just going to be for Israel. He's going to be for the whole nations. Remember Abraham, blessed to be a blessing, to be a light to all the nations. The true king is going to come with that mission. And nothing that Jesus has done in the Gospel of Luke so far has declared as loudly and as intentionally as this act of riding in on a donkey, saying, I am the promised king. Not the teaching, not the miracles, not the, again, that doesn't necessarily strike us, but for the people who were soaked in these scriptures, who knew Zechariah 9 by heart, nothing that Jesus has done so far has as boldly and loudly declared that I am viewing myself as the promised king coming into the city. That I am the promised one. Nothing says it more boldly. And everyone gets it, right? His, his followers get it as well as those who are opposed to him. They get what Jesus is doing. And so his followers, they see this happening. They get it. They're like, wow, this is, this is the moment. And they start singing one of their favorite psalms. Song, uh, you know, Psalm 118 is one of their favorite songs. They'd sung this a lot. The Psalms of the songbook of God's people, our songbook, that tell the story. It's the songbook of the king. And they see Jesus riding in, and they, they get it. They start singing Psalm 118. You see it in 19, verse 37. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives. So he had to go up the Mount of Olives, down, and then up into Jerusalem. He's already drawing near. He's coming down the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples begin to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They get it. They're praising him as king. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they get it too. They get what Jesus is doing and they don't like it. And they say, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd, verse 39, said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They say, Jesus, we recognize what you're doing. You're saying you're king and you are not the king. Not any king of ours. We know the people like you, but you are not going to be our king. But Jesus can't stop. He won't be stopped. The whole story has been leading to this moment. 
this moment. So what does Jesus say, verse 40? And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, if the crowds were silent, if they weren't crying out these words, the very stones would cry out. When the king enters the city, someone or something is going to praise and recognize for what it is. Jesus enters as king, but he doesn't do it in a lofty way. He doesn't do it with with military might. He does it in a lowly way on a donkey, making himself in the mold of this person who's bringing peace to all the nations, which leads us to our first question this morning, which is this, how are we using power? Because Jesus does not reject power. He's the king, but he transforms power in an incredibly different kind of way than anyone else uses power. In fact, we're going to see more of that in a couple weeks as he goes further and teaches in the upper room around the Passover meal. But Jesus transforms how he uses power. He is the suffering servant from Isaiah. He uses his power to serve, not to kind of amass his own comfort to find his own needs met, but rather to serve for the good of others. This is how Jesus transforms power. And so one of the diagnostics that we can use even in our own lives of who's actually functionally on the throne of my own life, is how how do I use power? Does it look like how Jesus uses power? Let me just give you one example. I know not all of us in the room are are parents, um, but all of us have had parents, so hopefully, you know, this, this can resonate at some level. But if you are a parent, you have incredible power in the life of your children, whether they are five years old or, or 45 years old, right? We, ne- we never outgrow this, this, this need, this desire to be cared for and, and, and approved and loved by our parents, right? So this isn't just when your kids are little. But we have incredible power if you're a parent over the life of your child. How do we use that power? Do we use it to command and dictate and enforce, coerce, get them to do the behaviors that, that, that we want that make our life easier? I can tell you as a dad of, of three little kids, I, that, is a natural, that is a very easy way to want to use power. Or do we use it to, to listen? To serve our children? Yes, to, to, to discipline and correct, but with kindness, with gentleness, with understanding for who they are and how God has made them in ways that bring restoration and form character, right? And that takes way, way, way more time. You have to slow down. You have to put down your phone. You have to stop doing what you want to do in moments to really be present with your kids. All this means giving up what I would rather be doing in those moments. But that's what Jesus does to power. He says, actually, it's not about me. I've given you this power so that you can serve, so you can be about others. So what does power reveal about who is king in your life? Are you following a king who is lofty? Or one who is gentle and lowly in heart? Here's our next contrast our next choice about the kind of king we want. Do we want a king who wars 
or a king who weeps? A king who wars or a king who weeps? Because as Jesus is entering the city, again, everyone there who's read their Bible, they know what Jesus is claiming to be about. His followers are saying, he's the king, he's the king. But the leaders and actually so many other people in Jerusalem, the city as a whole, and any, even many of the people who are there in that moment proclaiming that he is the one who is king in just a few days, later that week, they are going to be shouting, crucify him. So how does Jesus respond to people who reject him as king in this moment? And he doesn't have this moment of of wrath and anger against them. In fact, it's the utter opposite. And it's really this kind of like, you know, we're we're kind of familiar with it for those of us who know the story. But if you're not, it's this really kind of shocking, almost maybe turns you off a little bit this moment. What does Jesus do as he's coming down? He sees the city. You know, he's kind of been on the Mount of Olives. He's been watching. He's coming down. He's always rising up the hill, coming to Jerusalem. He's looking at the city. And what does he do as people there he knows are going to reject him? He starts weeping. He starts weeping. And the language of the text is clear. This isn't just kind of like a, he gets a little misty, you know, he's got to wipe, wipe a little tear away. I mean, he's sobbing. He's wailing. He's crying over the city. I, you know, Luke doesn't tell us what the crowd was thinking in this moment. But you've got to think, this is, they're, they're excited. The king is coming, the victorious, conquering king, right? And their picture for this would have been, you know, 150 years before this is, is the Greeks are ruling over, and there's this guy, Judas Maccabeus. He's this brilliant military commander. He leads this revolt to overthrow the Greeks, and, and it works, and he's able to go in. They cleanse the temple, which has been defiled by the pagans. This is where the, the Jewish holiday of Hanukkah is birthed out of. So it's like that's the picture they have in their mind. Jesus leading like this victorious, kind of strong, powerful military force into the city. And Jesus is on the back of a donkey crying. You almost get the sense that the donkey's like, Jesus, you're ruining it. This is not how this is supposed to work. He's weeping over the city. Why? Well, you see it in verses... 43 and 44, Jesus, even back up to really the beginning of uh, 42 there, he says, would you, would that you, even you, and he's talking to Jerusalem, had known that this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear down the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. This is around, you know, 30, 33 AD. Jesus knows that in 40 years, in, 30, in 70 AD, that the, Rome, the tension between Jerusalem and Rome, between the Jewish people, there continues to be these uprisings, these rebellions against Rome, that that is going to boil over. And in 70 AD, it does boil over. And the Romans come and they demolish Jerusalem. I mean, they completely wipe it out. And we ha- you can read the accounts in Josephus, a Jewish historian from this time. There's atrocities. I mean, it's it's absolutely horrible, terrible. Jesus knows. He knows in this moment that this is coming. They're replaying the pattern of exile over again. 
And Jesus weeps because he knows if only, if only they had chosen the things that made for peace, the outcome could be different. But he knows he's going there to be crucified, to die, to be rejected. And so he weeps. And the question here then for us is, is where must we weep with Jesus? Where must we meet, weep with Jesus? Because the people in the city, they, they don't weep. They don't know what's coming. They don't get what Jesus knows is coming. And they just continue to go on in their lives, living as though everything is fine. They don't weep. But there's times when we have to weep. Where does, where does what, what in our life causes Jesus to weep? I mean, maybe what causes Jesus to weep right now is that you actually haven't trusted him as king, and he knows, he knows that if you would just receive him and trust him as king, that, that the hope, that the, the healing, that the, the rescue that you so long for is just right there if you could just receive it. Or Jesus looks around at our world, and we've highlighted a couple of these recently in pastoral prayers back in January, but just the different forms of injustice, whether it's around race or the unborn in, in, our, in our country, in our context, the evils in the world. And they make him weep. And do we weep with him? Do we join with him in that? Are we weeping? And, uh, I'm just going to tell you this morning, I'm not, I'm not a crier. I actually do kind of get choked up in kind of like tear-jerking moments in movies. I mean, it's like, I don't know if you've ever seen Homeward Bound, you know, those three dogs, or the, or the cat, and it's like they come in, the shadow's not there, and you know, I could probably cry about that right now. And then he comes over the hill. I mean, there's moments in movies that I can cry. But when it comes to things like injustice, when it comes to things like like famine and humanitarian disaster in Yemen, other places around the world. It's like, I just, I don't, I'm not a crier. And, it, and it's not because I don't feel, but it's more because I don't want to feel. Like, I think over time, I've just said, I'm going to put that at arm's length. I don't want to let the pain of the world, there's too much. If I let it in, it'll overwhelm me. And so I've chosen to keep it at arm's length, to kind of push it away, to not, to feel, to not want to get in touch with those places of brokenness. And that's a problem because Jesus is the most truly, fully human being who has ever lived. And there are multiple times when he weeps over the brokenness of the world. He, he cries when Lazarus, his friend, is dead, even though he knows he's going to raise him from the dead, but the unbelief, the disease, the death that is wrought in his world, here in this moment, he weeps, he cries. I said, Ari, I need to grow in. Not, not shielding himself, not trying to kind of hide away, kind of maintaining this own inner calm and peace and not ever letting the world enter in, because there are things that we ought to weep about. And Jesus shows us how. We also have to always ask the question, too, where am I part of the problem, right, in the world that causes these things to be, that causes there to be a need for weeping in the world? And this is actually where Jesus goes next here, and this is our, our third, our last set of choices here. Do we want a king who coddles or a king who confronts? Who coddles or confronts? Because as Jesus enters the city, right, we read that final verse in verse 45, uh, this, that final section there. He goes into the city, and now he actually goes 
straight into the temple. So he goes into Jerusalem and then right into the center, the, the, the very center of not just physically of the city, but of actually the whole life and experience of what it meant to be a Jewish person in that moment. He goes right there to the center, the heart of their worship, the heart of their, their communal life at the temple. And he goes straight there. And again, this is an incredibly symbol-laden moment. Because if you go back again into the Old Testament, into the earlier chapters of this kingdom story, into the book of Ezekiel, you find that right as Israel is going into exile, they're leaving Jerusalem to go to exile into Babylon because they've abandoned their God. Ezekiel has this waking dream, this vision, where he sees the glory of God depart from the temple and go away. You can read about it in Ezekiel chapter 10 this week if you want. It's this really kind of sobering moment where God's presence with his people in the temple, it departs. And now you have Jesus. Who, who is Jesus? He is Yahweh, the God of Israel, made human. And where is he going? His presence is returning to the temple. But not to stay rather to confront. Because here's the thing, Jesus, he goes in to the temple, but he doesn't go to the Roman garrison that's right there, because there's a, a Roman garrison of troops stationed, because the, the temple was so often a site of, of uprising and inter, insurrection in Rome. The Romans said, we're just going to put a, a guard, a, a, you know, a group of soldiers here just to be ready at any time. But he doesn't go there. Look, look at verse 45 and 46. And he entered the temple and began driving out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus doesn't go to the pagans who are stationed near the temple and say, All of you pagan oppressors, get out of here. No, he goes to his own people first and says, You are distorting everything that the mission of Israel is supposed to be about. Now, we don't know exactly all the symbolism that Jesus is doing in this moment of kind of cleansing the temple, right? In other accounts, we don't see it here in Luke, but in Matthew, Mark, he's, he's flipping over tables, he's making, you know, a, a whip, and he's, you know, it's this kind of, this is violent moment, this, is, this kind of parable, this enacted parable of judgment on the temple. And, you know, there's lots of different theories as to why Jesus is doing this, why he's addressing the money. Are they, uh, you know, extorting people? Are they unjust in the way that they're changing over money? That was a necessary part of the temple, was you were bringing sacrifices. So just the fact that there was money changing hands was not, doesn't seem to be a problem, but somehow there's something about the way that that's happening. Or is it just the broader idea of, you know, these people praise me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The religious leaders, they act the part of the temple, but the rest of their lives show that they are not at all living in allegiance and loyalty and obedience to Yahweh, to the king. It's probably some of all of the above. But again, the main point here is that Jesus doesn't confront the pagans. He doesn't confront the Roman oppressors. He goes to his own people first. Because they've lost the mission. Because yes, we saw in point one, Jesus is lowly, but he will not coddle when it comes to those who will threaten his mission, his purposes, his rescue, his liberation effort, his work to bring salvation. 
So the question for us here is where have we lost the mission? And we could ask that as like a big sort of where we have the church in America lost the mission. And that's, I'm sure that's a great question we could dive into. I mean, where have we at Christ Community Brookside Campus, where have we lost the mission? And Jesus has called us to be salt and light. He's called us to make disciples of all peoples, to, to teach them to obey everything that he taught. This is the Great Commission in Matthew 28. I just asked myself this week, how are we doing with that? How am, how am I doing that? How are we as a community doing with that? Are we making disciples? And he made more to the point, uh, not only am I, am I teaching others to obey Jesus, but am, am, am I obeying Jesus? Am I, am I reading the Gospels? Am I soaking up everything that Jesus taught and, and trying to obey him faithfully in my own life? Because, I mean, that's where it starts, right? You're, you can't make disciples and teach others if, if you're not learning from the Master as well yourself. You know, Israel had gotten to this place where they had lost their mission. They were to be a light to the nations. That was with Abraham, right? That we were blessed and all the nations will be blessed through you. But they had come to this point now. And again, it's understandable, but the reason they had ended up in this place in the first place is they'd lost the mission. And now they're there in Rome and they view the nations only as enemies to be conquered and defeated, not as people to be welcomed into the family of God. And again, they lost the mission under the kings, which is why they ended up in Babylon in the first place. It's why they're still under the, the oppression of Rome in this moment. They had lost their calling to be a light, a people who were to welcome and show to the world what God was like. And that can happen to us also. It can happen to us also. Are we continuing to make disciples? Are we continuing to be faithful in learning from Jesus and to put into practice everything that he taught and teaching others to do the same? Are we shining the light in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our places of work, at our schools? Are we living in demonstrably different ways than those neighbors who wouldn't claim Jesus as king? Of early in the history of the Christian church, around the, you don't know exactly when this was written, but probably third, fourth century time frame, there, in this point, Christianity is still a relatively recent movement in the Roman Empire. And we have this, this letter, it's called the Epistle, the, the letter to Diognetius. And Diognetius was a, a Roman official who wanted to learn more about Christianity, this new movement within the Roman Empire. And so he writes a letter to a leader in the Christian church. We don't know this person's name, but they write back to Diognetius explaining about what Christians are like. And it's, it's called the letter to Diognetius. And I just want to read you a little portion of it because he gives such a great picture of the uniquenesses of Christians in that cultural moment. How they are just, they're, they're average, normal people, but they live a very different life. So this is what he writes back to Diognetius. Says Christians are indistinguishable from other people by nationality, language, custom. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak a strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. I mean, his point is, 
you know, they're not separating. They don't start their own little colonies off by themselves. They just live in their city, their country, their area, just like everybody else does. But yet there's something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, whatever it may be, is a foreign country. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not expose them. In other words, they always keep their children. There's no unwanted children who are left to die. They always protect their children. A radical pro life ethic from the very beginning. They do not expose them. They share their meals, but not their wives. They have this incredible, unheard of, prodigious generosity, but this countercultural sexual ethic. They live in the flesh, but they are not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon earth, but they are citizens of heaven. Obedient to the laws, they yet live on a level that transcends the law. Christians love all people, but all people persecute them. I mean, isn't that, inc- every time I read that, I'm just struck by, is that how people in Kansas City view the church? Do we live in this kind of distinct way? Again, at one level, we're just an average neighbor on the block, but in another way, we live a different life because we have a different king. We have a different set of priorities, a different set of agenda, that even, and, and yet there's something attractive about it. Even if people would disagree with some of our fundamental convictions, but that we would have such a, a spirit about us. I don't know if I believe what they believe, and I don't even hate some of the things they believe, but I, they, they are good, they are kind, they are service-oriented. Are we those kinds of people? What kind of king do we want? What kind of king do we want? Is this us? Because with Jesus, there is no middle ground. Right? We said that at the beginning. You can either crown him or you can crucify him. You can submit to him or you can shun him. There is no middle ground with Jesus, but he is the best king. Right, because there are kings, there are rulers, there are politicians who can get a crowd to cheer. But only Jesus can make the stones cry out, right? There are powers, there are leaders, there are politicians who can hold their position through power, but only Jesus can hold it through love. There are those leaders who can win the wars of this world, but there is only one king who can win the wars that are not of this world, who can defeat the powers of evil, who can break the bonds of sin and death, who can actually promise resurrection and new life eternal for all the age to come. Which king do you want? Who do you want as your king? Let's pray. King Jesus, we come to you knowing that we so often give our functional allegiance to other rulers. But we come so thankful for your forgiveness and for the gift of your Spirit who is able to transform us into the kinds of faithful image bearers who are part of this new people that you are building to rule the world together. 
according to your design and according to your plan. So would we be the kind of people who follow you in the use of power, in this upside-down, lowly, weeping, but willing to confront kind of power and way of being in the world? Would you send your spirit in fresh ways to help us to do this? Because we can't do it on our own. We are too weak. But you've promised us the gift of your spirit who can do what we could never do on our own and in our own power. So we ask for that in freshness and abundance today. In Jesus' name, amen.